Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing emerging trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Thomas, we just wrapped up a really long and wide-ranging interview with Dr. Kichao Hu. He is building a company that is poised to revolutionize batteries, and they've got a lot of fundamental research into artificial intelligence, material science, using the blockchain for a bunch of stuff. They want to build flying cars that are cheap, so none of us are stuck in traffic anymore. So I mean, we covered so much stuff. Was there anything in particular that jumped out at you? Yeah, you know there are there are no battery unicorns out there. Um, you know it it's such a long, grueling process that that he talked through that he's going through right now, and this is something that they never teach in school. As um, if you want to become an entrepreneur, they never teach you that you have to go through twenty years of of slogging through the ditches to uh, and the emotional ups and downs of uh possibilities and uh, all of the stuff that that involves and and i know that he's gone through many crisis periods where he's had to uh, they're running out of money and they have to raise more money and they have to keep going and so far they haven't turned to any any profit and uh, you know that's something that's off uh vaguely in the distance that is really a, a challenging situation to be in and I, I just applaud his effort for really hanging in there and making uh, making this whole thing work. Um, so I think by the time he's done, I, I don't know, they should uh, the whole country should celebrate. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I hope they do, and I hope they become fantastically wealthy. But I'm glad you said it that way and, and framed it in in those terms because I think what really jumped out to me was not so much the chemistry, which was fascinating, or the physics, which was very interesting, but it's more the approach to entrepreneurship. So one of the things we talked about is how there are plenty of people today who are building social media, who are building uh, you know, gaming platforms or what have you, and there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But deep tech is, is a different kind of thing and draws on different internal and external resources. You've got to have a fortitude that's very unusual. You've got to have a knowledge that's much more comprehensive than usual. And we've talked to a few entrepreneurs who are doing things like that, but uh, he's very notable in that regard that he's kind of like Elon Musk or kind of one of these other people who's really trying to just break the physics and break the chemistry and move everything forward in a really foundational way. And so towards the end of the episode, I really enjoyed picking his brain about that process and what that looks like. And you know, how, how he finds the signal and the noise and how he stays in contact with the science, how he makes decisions about when it's time to abandon one material and focus on another. Like, how, what does that switch look like? What do those conversations look like? And I think that anyone who's considering doing those things or who's interested in that process will profit a lot from this interview. Right, right. Um, it, it may actually be a big turnoff for a lot of people that were considering it too, because it's, <laughs> it's not... A, it's not a simple thing. It is uh, not for the faint of heart or the small of brain, I would say. <laughs> right, right. Uh, or the or thin anybody, of wallet, actually. <laughs> or anybody lacking persistence. Yeah. yeah. That uh, it, it takes takes a lot of stamina, a lot of energy to to do what he's done. I, I really admire that in, in him. 
Well, if you are thinking about uh, tackling a deep tech frontier or you want to be talked out of it, either way, I think you'll find lots of interesting things in this interview. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Ki Chao Hu. Tonight, we're joined by Dr. Ki Chao Hu. Dr. Hu serves as the Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of the Board of SES. He is the recipient of MIT Technology Review's Innovators Under 35 and was named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2013. Dr. Hu earned his PhD in Applied Physics from Harvard University and his BS in Physics from MIT. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futureauditorpodcast.com. Dr. Hu, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you, guys. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today. Yeah. Um, so I really uh, started working on lithium batteries uh, in the mid-2000s. And then, so back then and still today, there are two types of uh, uh, batteries, lithium ion and lithium metal. And lithium ion was first commercialized in the early 1990s. And that really enabled the whole era of consumer electronics. Um, without lithium ion, we wouldn't have the iPhone, we wouldn't have all the apps. Um, and a lot of the development of uh, even AI and social network will be uh, uh, much slower without the uh, portable consumer electronics. Lithium metal uh, is similar but also quite different from lithium ion and then it's really designed for mobility moving things or people uh, from uh, place a to place b so in the mid 2000s when i uh, started my phd work at mit uh, my professor actually had been developing lithium metal uh, technology since the 1990s and then when i joined um, it was a right time also um, at that time, the whole U.S. Um, was going through a really exciting uh, shift uh, to renewable energies. So a lot of universities, uh, research labs receive a lot of funding for new battery technologies, new solar cell technologies, new water purification, uh, bio, you name it. So, uh, and then I had the, the privilege of joining uh, Donald Sadaway. I had the privilege of uh, joining his lab, and then I started working on lithium metal um, batteries in the mid-2000s. That's fascinating. So as I understand it, you were not originally drawn to science. You're, you're not one of the standard origin stories where you were always fascinated by these things. You, you originally were more interested in things like art and history and the humanities. And then you came to physics. You eventually got your PhD in physics, if I recall correctly. Tell us a little bit about that journey into the hard sciences. Yeah, so when I was a kid, I actually really liked art a lot, uh, and then also mythology, Greek mythology, and there's just something about ancient mythology that was just really attractive uh, uh, to me, and then I read a lot of that, and I didn't know any physics until uh, until 10th grade, um, and then this was really uh, an internship opportunity, so I was... Um, um, Going to high school in New York City, and then I had this opportunity to do an internship at the uh, American Museum of Natural History, Hayden Planetarium, and then 
Um, I was really, uh, I was always fascinated by Greek mythology, which had to do with stars, constellations. And then, so this internship was um, was in the Hayden Planetarium and then trying to study the uh, red shift uh, value of various stars and galaxies, basically to see how, how fast different galaxies were moving away from us. So that was my uh, my introduction to astrophysics. And then it was really fascinating because I was uh, interested in the in the uh, mythological stories. And then now I could actually study uh, the stars and, and the uh, uh, galaxies that were part of um, that made out these uh, stories. So then then um, I went to MIT for undergraduate. I studied uh, physics. I was really intrigued by uh, astrophysics, um, uh, still remains uh, uh, today uh, my uh, biggest interest. And also, it's also behind a lot of the uh, development that we do uh, in uh, artificial intelligence. And then, and then in my uh, graduate research, um, I study uh, applied physics. And then this was around the mid-2000s. This was when the U.S. Department of Energy gave a lot of funding. So, uh, as, And then a lot of uh, uh, students that studied physics actually went into renewable energy to apply their knowledge in physics into uh, fields like batteries and solar cells. Are you familiar with C.P. Snow's idea of two cultures? Are, have, have you heard this phrase? No, no. So the basic idea is that at some point in the past, maybe the 40s or 50s, I don't know the exact year, but there came to be this divergence in the intellectual classes where you had people who studied the humanities, they studied philosophy, they studied art, and then you had the science people who studied astrophysics and they studied quarks and they studied, mm -hmm. you know, solid state matter and, and all these other things. And there has not been a, an effective bridge between these two cultures, these two disciplines. And as they drifted further apart, They've developed their own languages. They don't see the world the same way. And it's created this kind of tension in the culture. And I actually saw a tweet the other day saying that epical founders tend to bridge that gap. So you've mm. got Mark Zuckerberg, who knows Greek and Latin. And he's huge into the classics. He quotes Cicero at meetings. You've got people like Mark Andreessen who read voraciously. And the people who are able to unite those two cultures are often able to see things that the rest of us aren't and bring these great companies into existence. So just out of curiosity, I mean, do you think that your fascination with Greek myths, with, with art, with history, with the humanities has allowed you to build this incredible company, has allowed you to innovate in ways that other people wouldn't be able to. I actually see a lot of similarity between science and humanities. I mean, like management engineering is actually quite different, but uh, science, especially very fundamental science, where it's hard to run experiments to uh, verify your hypothesis, like in, in, in the field of astrophysics, it's really similar to, to humanities. And then also there are these theories about the, the cycle of civilization, uh, for example, 10,000 years ago, we had a civilization just as advanced, at, well, potentially more advanced than we have today. And I think that's that's possible. And then the universe goes through these cycles, whether at the planet, whether it's at the planet level, the the civilization level, or like the 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 life of universe uh, level, it goes through these these cycles. And then. Um, uh, perhaps thousands of years ago, we didn't have the modern scientific uh, terminology to characterize what we saw. So uh, uh, the ancient philosophers uh, wrote down 
what they saw in the form of uh, humanities, writings, mythology. Um, but actually what they were trying to convey were actually very uh, fundamental uh, science that, that sometimes because you cannot see and you cannot measure doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Uh, and then also you have this intuitive um, uh, gut feeling for something and, and that's actually very accurate. Uh, way more accurate than some instruments that you can use to to measure. So, so um, and then for me, in terms of starting this company and then running this company, there are lots of things that that uh, just times and times, uh, like this gut feeling, this thing that you could feel, that you could see, uh, you probably cannot describe it on PowerPoint, actually proved to be true. Uh, it, it's hard to describe that, but that kind of feeling I had when I studied astrophysics and I had when I read uh, uh, books on Greek mythology. Um, so, so it's a very unique uh, feeling. Yeah, I think so, it's interesting. Um, go ahead, Thomas. I'm sorry. Yeah, when, when you first started the company, you had some idea of what success looked like to you. And clear, clearly that changes over time. And so do you have a way of describing what success looked like early on and then what it looks like at this point? Yes, I think very different. I think in the early days, uh, success. So in the very early days, we uh, we pursued a different uh, version of lithium metal battery technology. It was high temperature solid polymer. And then our application was downhole oil exploration. So in the early days, success to us was we could sell some batteries to oil companies, to oil service <laughs> companies, uh, to to better ex uh, do exploration, to study the oil gas reservoir downhole. Uh, and that was success in, in 2012, 2013, in the early days. And then yeah. uh, it evolved to, okay, we solved the temperature limitation and now the batteries could work at room temperature. So then we started applying this to to electric cars and then to drones and then most recently urban air mobility flying cars, flying okay. cars are super exciting and also uh, recently uh, the we started applying new tools like artificial intelligence and machine learning to discover new materials and then that um, opened up a lot of new opportunities that that we didn't know before. So what was what was your reaction when you heard about LK ninety nine um, about the uh, uh, superconductors developed in Korea? Um, you were probably skeptical initially, but then um, somewhere in the back of your mind, you're thinking somebody's going to get this right eventually. <laughs> and how would that change your battery technology? So I think it would change a lot of the applications that that our batteries uh, would serve. Um, also, the field of computing, um, definitely. Okay, it's a shame it didn't end up uh, working out. But yeah, we were we were all pretty excited about it for ten days or so. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's get into the fundamentals of your battery technology. So you mentioned that you uh, that there were many people working on commercializing lithium 
ion technology. You began with lithium metal. You were looking at solid polymers. Uh, I, I did a bunch of research on this, and it's just a rabbit hole that never ends. Battery chemistry just goes yeah. forever. So uh, yeah. if, if you want to talk to us where, wherever you want to start, that's fine, and, we, and we'll go from there. If you want to start with the most recent stuff, if you want to walk us through the history, I, I don't really care, but I've got a lot of questions about what it is you're actually doing. Sure, sure. So obviously there are lots of uh, uh, coverage out there about batteries and lots of terminology, and then things can get quite confusing. So at a high level, it's all lithium battery. And the reason why people want to use lithium, because on the periodic table, lithium is number three. It's the mm -hmm. lightest metal we have in the universe. Um, so it's a perfect material to use for portable energy storage. And everyone around the world agrees on that. Uh, and then within lithium battery, there are two types of batteries. There's lithium ion and lithium metal. So lithium ion, and, and interestingly, both of them were developed uh, initially around the same time in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Lithium ion uh, was successfully commercialized in the early 1990s by, by the likes of Sony. Uh, and then that enabled back then the, the Sony Walkman and then the laptop, the smartphone, um, the whole consumer electronics. Lithium metal, on the other hand, people tried different versions of lithium metal, trying to make it work. Solid state, solid polymer, oxides, uh, liquid, different versions of lithium metal, but so far no one has been able to commercialize lithium metal, at least nowhere near the level of success that lithium ion has had. So those are the two types of batteries, lithium ion and lithium metal. You can put every other name that you've heard about lithium battery in either one of these two uh, buckets. So what we do is... <clears throat> Um, so in the 1990s and then 2000s, the mainstream approach to do lithium metal is solid state. There's solid polymer, there's solid oxides, there's solid sulfides. The two main approach, one is a solid polymer, one's oxides. The solid polymer had really two limitations. One is it only worked at elevated temperatures. So you had to heat the car or whatever to 65 degrees Celsius before it could be operational. It only worked at high temperature. And also the material was not stable with high voltage. It was only stable with a, a relatively low voltage cathode. So that actually um, reduced the energy density benefit of lithium metal. So that's the solid polymer. And then we worked on it um, um, both my my professor's lab and myself in the 90s and much of the 2000s. And then that was the initial technology that we used to start SES. The other approach is uh, oxide. And oxide has very good uh, properties at the material level, but then it was really difficult to be manufactured at scale. And it was primarily used for thin film batteries. Uh, thin film, very small batteries. Because when you try to make these these uh, oxide solid state coatings very thin and over a large area, it became very brittle. So it was really hard to make a, a large size. Even companies like Apple tried to make a solid state oxide lithium metal battery for the Apple Watch, which is, is about one-tenth the capacity of an iPhone. They couldn't do that. So even for... An Apple Watch, you couldn't, you couldn't uh, do that. And then, uh, so 2015, we pivoted. 
we uh, dropped the solid polymer lithium metal approach, and then we pivoted to a high concentration solvent in salt approach to lithium metal, but still lithium metal because we, we want to use lithium metal. And then we like the energy density of uh, the high energy density of lithium metal, um, but then we didn't like the temperature and the uh, low voltage stability of the solid polymer. So we pivoted to high concentration solvent in salt. And I think that was uh, probably the smartest decision we've ever made in the past uh, 11 years. And this high concentration solvent in salt uh, is, is a lot more practical. Uh, it has enabled us to build these large 100 amp hour cells, lithium metal cells, and then truly demonstrate the high energy density of lithium metal. And then because we pivoted, uh, um, we gained the attention of of pretty much every car company in the world. And then we uh, selected three, General Motors, Honda, and Hyundai uh, to, to work uh, very closely with them to uh, develop this battery chemistry and then get it through the entire automotive qualification process. Um, so the, <clears throat> so the um, key technology that we have to make lithium metal practical include this high concentration solvent in salt, which is uh, this electrolyte is our key. Also this uh, lithium metal anode, this very thin lithium metal anode, and also uh, software that we use. Uh, lithium metal, unlike lithium ion, is very sensitive to, to the environment. And also lithium ion, prior to being used in automotive applications, actually went through a lot of real world testing in consumer electronics. So it, it has that, that vast amount of data and uh, experiments, uh, whereas lithium metal doesn't have that. So to put lithium metal in an automotive application, how do you bridge, how do you fill all this, all this gap, the, the prior data that lithium ion has from other industries? And the way to do that is with the use of uh, AI and machine learning. So we actually have these massive um, uh, bunkers where we run thousands of large cells for testing so that we can simulate different types of real world conditions and then, and then see how these lithium metal cells will behave and then train the, the model so that it can actually monitor the battery health and then predict safety. Um, so even though lithium ion has been commercialized since the 90s, lithium metal is about to be commercialized. This, this roughly 20, uh, uh, 30 years or so of gap of data, um, it took lithium ion about 30 years to get that data and that uh, experience, but we can actually accelerate a lot of this data accumulation and uh, uh, training through a lot of the simulated testing. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati Podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati Podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com Go to the contact page and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you.
So I, I definitely have lots of questions about that because I'm a I'm a machine learning engineer myself. Mm -hmm. But I I wanted to ask kind of a, a almost embarrassingly dumb question first, and that's you mentioned at the beginning that basically every battery is some variant of a lithium based battery, and that's because it's the lightest metal we have. It, why do batteries have to be made? out of a metal like that? Is it just that they're the only kinds of things that can conduct electricity in that way or store it in that way? I mean, can you just talk to me about the chemistry of that part of it? Yes. So, so uh, I didn't mean all batteries have to be lithium. Obviously, there are non-lithium batteries. There's a nickel cadmium, there's lead acid, and then we use that in uh, under the hood of a car for the uh, start and stop. And then those actually work fine. Uh, so I meant for portable, uh, portable energy storage. Uh, for applications where you actually care about the weight, the size, like your phone, your laptop, your smartwatch, your electric car, and the main power battery of your electric car, you want something that's very light and very small. You want an element that can store a lot of charge in a very small volume and very light mass. So what you do is you look up the periodic table, and then you look the the lightest and the smallest element. The lightest and the smallest element is hydrogen, so hydrogen, obviously, um, we can use that for hydrogen fuel cells. And then it's a, um, it's also a fantastic material for energy storage. Obviously, there are issues associated with hydrogen fuel cells with uh, storage transportation because it's a gas, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to store that and then transport that. Helium is pretty inert. It doesn't participate in, uh, in much chemical or electrochemical reaction. So it's not that useful for uh, a reaction. Then what's after that? Then that's lithium. Lithium is not a gas like hydrogen. It's a metal. And it's number three. So it's it's the third lightest element and the lightest metal uh, that we have. And it stores uh, charge and capacity in a very uh, small and light uh, format. So that's why lithium uh, is an ideal choice for portable energy storage because it's a metal, it's not a gas, and you can store a lot of charge in a very light and uh, 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 small volume. And can you tell us a little bit about the, what is it, solvent in salt, the approach you're using now? What led to that breakthrough? Like you mentioned some of the properties it has, but I'm just trying to like picture how it works and, yeah. and what, what makes it better. Yeah. So, so, um, the ideal phase of material for an electrolyte in a battery is actually liquid. It's actually not solid. Uh, people say a lot about solid state. And then solid state gain is popularity in the semiconductor. So in semiconductor, when you have electrons uh, transferring, you want a solid. But in the battery, it's different. In the battery, you don't have electrons. You have ions. And, and it's like undergraduate chemistry. Uh, electrons like to run. Ions like to swim. <laughs> So the ideal electrolyte should be a liquid. Now, uh, of course, to the conventional liquid electrolyte, the, the problem is you have uh, salt, you have lithium salt, and then most lithium salts are solid at room temperature. So to make it a liquid, you actually have to add a lot of solvents. And then these solvents tend to be um, organic, uh, volatile, flammable materials. And the solvents are actually the ones that create a lot of uh, instability and and fire and explosion and risk in the battery. The lithium salts are okay. It's actually mostly the solvents. And then in conventional uh, liquid electrolyte, it's a uh, salt and solvent. So think of 
a cup with a lot of solvent, a lot of liquid, and then just a few sprinkles of salt. That's the conventional liquid electrolyte. Now, um, what we want to do is, is so we know the salt is actually good. Um, it's a solvent that actually creates all of the issues. Um, our goal is actually to flip that. Think of a cup full of salt and then just add a few drops of liquid. Um, so, so really minimize the, the uh, liquid solvent that's used. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of chemistry involved. For example, you can just add more solvent to the mixture because it wouldn't uh, dissolve the salt. And you have to change the type of solvent. You have to change the type of salt. And there's also a variety of, of um, solvents, cold solvents, salt, cold salts, additives, all that, that have to be used. Uh, but basically, at a high level, is we want to get to the ideal, purest form of electrolyte, and that is pure lithium salt that happens to be a liquid at room temperature. That doesn't exist today. Uh, so what we do is we minimize the amount of solvent that's used. And we also use very stable, very uh, non-flammable, non-volatile solvents so that we improve the, the safety and the stability on lithium metal. And so uh, assuming that you succeed in this engineering task, how much better will the batteries you produce be? Those, the finished product, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so lithium metal has twice the energy density of lithium ion. So, so for example, a, a Hummer EV running on lithium ion goes 300 miles. A Hummer EV, the exact same Hummer EV, keeping everything the same, running on lithium metal will go 500 miles. And Or you can also go 300 miles, but then you can add more payload. So that's for electric cars. Also for flying cars, you can increase the flying range, keeping the weight the same, or you can keep the flying range the same, but you can increase the payload. Yeah, how much difference in size is there in the, the two materials, lithium ion versus liquid metal? Yeah, so, so if you keep the size, the volume the same, okay. lithium metal will provide 500 miles versus oh, okay. lithium ion okay. only 300 miles. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, do you think that that would bring the cost of electric vehicles down quite a lot? I mean, would it, would a Tesla be forty thousand dollars instead of eighty thousand as it is now? I think so, uh, because a lot of the electric cars, uh, the consumers have this this minimal range that they will feel comfortable. You probably will not buy a car that's that has only 40 miles or 70 miles or anything under than under 200 miles, you probably wouldn't buy that. But once it's 300 miles, then you will consider that. Mm -hmm. And then a 300 mile Tesla, say Model 3 running on lithium ion versus a 300 mile Tesla Model 3 running on lithium metal, that lithium metal pack will be so much smaller. That means all the steel, all the casing, all the protection, every, all, there is this spiral equation. If you make the battery, the cell smaller than the pack, everything else will, will also become smaller. And you will end up saving a lot of cost there. You've mentioned flying cars a couple of different times. Let's get into the second order effect. So we assume SES has succeeded and you know now we're all driving Teslas. What, what are some of the other industrial impacts that this will have or, or even just consumer impacts that this will have? So I think... Um, 
we are really interested in mobility, and I think lithium. So lithium ion was created for the for the digital age. I think lithium metal is created for the mobility age, electric mobility, and electric cars uh, definitely are very exciting. Electric flying cars, anything that that flies needs a very uh, needs to a very light weight, mm-hmm. and so so things like urban air mobility urban air mobility and then i don't think we've we've seen anything yet and this urban air mobility could really uh, take off and then for example uh, i live in northern new jersey i work in boston drive is like three and a half hours if i take the amtrak it's four hours right uh, but you could fly and it's point to point from my house and then to to boston you could fly and then these these uh, urban air mobility, these electric flying cars um, have a range of 300 miles. Uh, some measure close to 500 miles, um, quite quite long range. And then you could easily fly along the coast. Same thing for California um, and other countries where you have a coastline, you can fly above the water. So I think uh, that's definitely an application that's waiting to be uh, to be uh, really enabled by lithium metal, and then also other applications like unmanned applications, drone delivery. We're already seeing some of that. Uh, also, drone emergency response. Um, um, for example, now uh, say hospitals they have to transport uh, blood or, or organ from one hospital to the next. Uh, but then the ambulance gets stuck in traffic. Um, you could easily fly a drone, right? And then, and uh, also um, pipeline, gas pipeline surveillance. Um, some of these these uh, pipelines could be thousands of kilometers. So the these large drones can actually fly uh, to do inspection. Uh, also, also for example, from mainland to to say like an oil rig uh, in the ocean. Now you uh, fly a helicopter with a human pilot, but you could easily send a drone. So I think a lot of the drone delivery uh, and uh, urban air mobility, I think these are very uh, exciting applications that we haven't seen yet, but will definitely be enabled by lithium metal batteries. So you just you just mentioned uh, uh, going over the ocean. I just got back on a cruise uh, a short while ago. Uh, does this have any application in like cargo ships and cruise ships, that sort of thing? Yes. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, in Singapore, in some of the, the ports, so uh, the drones, these are large drones, would actually move some of the packages from the ship to the dock. Um, okay. Yes, yeah, so we've already seen some of this, yeah. So it sounds like it, it will improve the unit economics once yes. it's cheaper to yeah. move these things around, once it's cheaper to manufacture them because of enabled by your battery technology, the costs come down. You'll see new startups doing these things. We actually interviewed a, a guy a while back who's building a, a drone rental platform like the, mm-hmm. what, how did he describe it? The Airbnb for drones, or he had a phrase for it. But basically the idea was you could spin up fleets of drones to do many of the things you're already describing. Uh, pipeline inspection was something we spent a lot of time on. All yeah. of that will be cheaper and enabled by having this much more mobile means by which to store power and transport it around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. And also uh, being in Boston, we're actually working with some uh, marine biologists that study whales of uh, the Cape Cod. And then we actually uh, use our drones and then um, uh, to help them do filming. And then these are quite large drones that are very stable in the ocean with all the wind. Um, yeah, the applications are endless. Ah, fascinating. Yeah, so when you when you start uh, moving this forward over time, how what's your estimate as how long it'll be before we reach like a thousand mile car uh, with a thousand mile range? Uh, that seems like the the holy grail out there. Uh, I see lots of people projecting that that's going to happen at a certain time. What's your thinking on that? I think that really depends on the uh, car design. Um, for example, Lucid currently, even on lithium ion, old battery technology can already go 500 miles. I think that it's, it's their ocean, the, the sedan. So I yeah. think it's it's possible. And and uh, yeah, I don't think we're that far away. I mean, the, the market need for a thousand mile car uh, I'm not sure, but but I think the technology is not that far away. If you think of it as a system, like the car, the pack, the engine, and and the battery. Yeah, I, t I tend to drive a lot cross country and through through a lot of states where there's not a lot of recharging stations mm -hmm. yet. Yeah. So the the people that live there, they still have a lot of range anxiety, um, and are still. Uh, kind of put off by the idea that uh, the electric car is a solution for them. Um, so that's where the the idea of if you get up to a thousand miles, that yeah. pretty much eliminates range anxiety. Then yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's possible, and and, and uh, it'll probably take a collaboration between a battery company and the OEM to really optimize the car, the system, to achieve that that kind of range. Right. Well, and long right. long before you need a thousand mile car, you need thousand mile drones. You need thousand mile mm -hmm. uh, other sorts of transportation systems. So there's you know long haul freight or any of those sorts of things would benefit from that added range, I would think, and the reduced weight. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So earlier you said that there is a substantial gap between how much testing and real world experimental data you have for lithium ion batteries versus lithium metal batteries and that you have attempted to bridge that that gap and make up for that through machine learning and artificial intelligence these simulations you've even built this entire uh platform around this avatar so can we talk a little bit about that your your approach to using machine learning for material science because that's something that i find very very exciting yeah, well, so there's uh, two aspects um, of machine learning uh, for us. One is on the uh, real-world testing. It's really to get the car companies comfortable with lithium metal battery chemistry. Um, and the car companies, I mean, all car companies um, are quite used to lithium-ion, the, the good, bad, and ugly. Uh, because, well, one, lithium-ion has been using cars for a while, and also prior to that, they were using other applications. Um, so the car companies know under different scenarios, say this car uh, goes over a pothole and it's raining and it's hot. Um, so the, the, the car companies have a certain level of comfort with lithium-ion. 
just because of all the previous data. We don't have that with lithium metal. And then for the car companies to transition from lithium ion to lithium metal, this will be the biggest transition uh, since they transitioned from nickel cadmium to lithium ion uh, in the in the 90s. So this will be a, a very big uh, transition at the fundamental chemistry level. And we need to convince them that it's okay, it's, it's safe. But obviously, how would you predict these real-world uh, scenarios? You can't. So what you do is we we have these cells, these lithium metal cells, and then we run them through uh, both a massive universe of uh, design of experiment, all the different uh, charge and discharge rate, uh, uh, state of charge, temperature, pressure, all the different uh, possible uh, scenarios that we can think of. At the same time, we uh, we also carefully select a few points in this universe to train this machine learning model so that because we can never uh, uh, create a, a large enough uh, testing condition that will cover all the possible real world scenarios. We cannot do that. But our goal is we carefully design a few points in the testing condition universe and then train this machine learning model that has all the information that that has learned about the fundamental material properties of the battery, the manufacturing defects of the battery, so that it can predict how it will behave in these other scenarios that we didn't explicitly train it. And the goal is is um, is basically considering a combination of manufacturing defects because we will always have certain. Uh, some manufacturing defects and also real-world testing data um, and then leverage machine learning so that we can monitor the battery health and then uh, and then send a warning when uh, send a warning before something uh, bad happens so it sounds it sounds like you're describing a couple of different data science problems there one is trying to predict long-term performance and one is on monitoring the health of the battery in real time do I have that right yes 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 so the the battery, for every battery we make, we have uh, full traceability of the material that's, that went inside the battery of all the manufacturing data. And then once the battery uh, leaves our, our manufacturing line and then goes inside a module, a pack, and it goes inside a vehicle, the vehicle actually collects the, the battery data once every three minutes or five minutes. So, the, so an electric car, you never really turn off an electric car. Every three to five minutes, it will send the data mainly uh, uh, battery data to the cloud. And, and then that will allow us to have this this live uh, data. What what kind of machine learning models are you using for that? Yeah, so we're using uh, pretty, um, I would say generic models. We don't really build the models in-house. And then we have uh, several collaborations with uh, research labs at. MIT and also uh, some companies, and then we use their models. Um, but what we do is is the the data are obviously ours, and then we train these models with our data. That's remarkable. I'm just thinking, like, how would you do that? It, it doesn't sound like you'd build a huge neural network. It sounds like it'd be... We don't do that, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it would be anomaly detection models. Uh, it sounds like it might be a linear regression or a couple of logistic regression models on yeah, ensembles, yeah. ensembles yeah. of all of those. Uh, how, how much data do you have on all this? Like, I mean, Is it terabytes? Is it gigabytes? 
was uh, it's it's close to terabytes. Um, for example, we we build several thousand of these large lithium metal cells, large 100 amp hour lithium metal cells per month per line, and then we run through uh, uh, each cell has uh, manufacturing data. Some are very uh, simple data. Some are actually images, X-ray images, ultrasound images that are uh, much larger. And then also in the actual testing, all of the data. Uh, so, so the for each cell, we actually collect a lot of data. Now, if you're using X-rays and images, that actually might be pretty complicated if you're doing computer vision under there uh, and feeding yeah. that as inputs, extracting those you know feature maps and using those as inputs into models. Yeah. The actual yeah. final model may not be that complicated, but I bet the feature engineering part is right, right, pretty complex. Right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and that's important. That's important because. Um, the cells will have manufacturing defects and the manufacturing yeah. actually um, is one area where you could have a lot of anomalies in the final cell performance i mean the cell say you expect 700 cycles but then the way you you stack the electrodes the overhand the mismatch between the cathode and the anode for example if the uh, correct value should be 1.5 millimeters and and in, in this case, it turns out to be 0.7 millimeters. You see that in the mm. X-ray. And then also um, when you soak electrolyte, um, it's, say it's not uniformly soaked, it, it has high concentration in one spot. And then that could mean the difference between 700 cycles and 400 cycles. Um, and, then, and then when these cells come off the line, you may not see much difference in the electrochemical data, but then after cycling, um, then, then the performance actually starts to diverge. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati Podcast? If so, please like it, give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Have you given any thought to applying artificial intelligence and in particular generative AI to material science? Because I've, I've got a couple of clients that I write for it, and this is something I've been sort of casually reading about as part of my research for different pieces that I've been shipping. And it's pretty remarkable, some of the stuff they're trying to do, uh, specifically learning in the same way that GPT-4 is able to learn the statistical distribution of all the words and look at the tokens that have preceded and predict the next follow-on sequence of tokens. That same basic paradigm can be applied to lots of other things. Music is an obvious one. Art is an obvious one. But it turns out you might be able to do that with chemical structures. You might be able to learn the the final properties of a chemical based on the underlying chemistry. And that's a very difficult problem to solve. And yet they're using generative AI in material science research. And given where you're at and what you're doing, it must have crossed your mind to explore this a little bit. So I wondered if you had any thoughts. Yeah, um, we're definitely doing that. And then we started doing that, I would say maybe nine months to, to about a year ago. Uh, and then we got this inspiration from our colleagues in life science, in drug discovery. And they use the, yep. this tool a lot in, for example, antibiotics. Um, yep. the, not a lot of people have done this or applied this tool in battery material development, but then we started doing this. For example, one project is, is again, I mentioned there's a high concentration solvent in cell electrolyte, the solvent molecules. 
we don't really know why certain solvent molecules give better performance than others. We think right. we know, but we don't know. And then battery is, uh, people call it a dark art. It's not like you can write down a list of principles. And if you follow, mm -hmm. then you get it. If you don't follow, then it's not like that. Sometimes it works. For example, water. Water is like lithium battery's biggest enemy. But then if you, if you for example, add a lot of salt, so water in the low concentration, a lot of water, a, a small, low concentration of salt, obviously doesn't work in lithium battery. Well, actually, in the high concentration, you have a lot of salt and small amount of water. Actually, it works okay in lithium batteries. So a lot of these really uh, uh, intricate properties and uh, very nuanced uh, in the solvent molecule structures, we didn't really know. And then we internally, obviously, have, have more than 10 years of data. Um, so we started uh, uh, training these models with our internal data and then trying to figure out, okay, exactly what do these solid molecules have in common and, and, and how are they different? And then can we uh, predict, can we design new solid molecules that, that perhaps our human scientists didn't really bother to think? And then we uh, uh, synthesize and then test those. The, the ambiguity, the, the ambiguity and the uncertainty does, in your view, does that come more from a lack of fundamental knowledge about the way different structures give rise to properties in the final molecule? Or is it more, there's just a bunch of stuff in there and it's hard to model how it's going to interact, right? Because we, we understand, I'm prepared to say we understand water fairly well, yeah. but maybe there's like a threshold effect where when you go from 41% to 42%, suddenly some kind of electrical van der Waals force interaction or whatever can't happen anymore and the solvent is just useless so is it like it, it, or is it a mix of the two yeah so uh in material science there's a famous saying uh god created bulk and devil created interfaces so we have pretty good understanding of the bulk pro <laughs> the, the the properties of the bulk material but the interfaces are so complicated and then in a the battery, the interfaces also changes based on the temperature, the cycling rates, pressure, uh, state of health, uh, new battery, old battery. Like it's, it's a it's combinatorial so problem. It's a combinatorial problem. Yeah, it's it's super complicated, and no one's been able to to come up with like a model that can simulate this. So the conventional uh, simulation really doesn't work because the interfaces are so complicated. So then, then we we okay. Then if we cannot understand it, maybe we don't have to understand. Um, if if these new machine learning models can figure out some structures, and then if they work, okay. So 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 uh, unlike the traditional scientific approach, whereas you try to understand it first and then you run experiment. Now we just just have these machine learning machine learning models do it first, and then we try to understand it. Um, we we try to explain it afterwards. Yeah, I think that's why explainability and interpretability are such important emerging fields in machine learning because you get these models that are just unambiguously incredibly predictive. They're just remarkably yeah. powerful, and no one's really sure why. No one's sure what they're yeah. doing in there. Yeah. What what cognitive subroutines are running? Are they forming concepts? Does it even make sense to talk about them that way? So that's why one of the more exciting things happening in machine learning now is the is like mechanistic interpretability, trying to actually back out and reverse engineer the underlying operations of these models and figure out 
where their power derives from or if there's bias in the model or if they fail in weird edge cases why all that stuff is yeah yeah and and that's that stuff is is fascinating to me it's like when i was in high school studying astrophysics i mean uh, are we part of a simulation what's outside this box questions like that um i don't think we have good good answers to that and then even if we have some hypothesis i don't think there's any way of of testing that so then why do we need to verify it's it's, it's i think i think I, i'm I'm comfortable with just just having this machine learning model and then give results and then not try to understand why. <laughs> it makes batteries, and I made money with them. That's all I care about. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What about uh, what what about like quantum computing? So that that is a technology, a computational substrate that's emerging that has all these remarkable applications for things like drug discovery and material science. The drug discovery and material science well, and finance being three of the major intermediate term use cases that people are most excited about have you explored using that at all for these sorts of design processes yeah um not yet um, um currently at the scale of data that we're dealing with um we use uh supercomputers and then we rent time on some supercomputers in, in uh, some national labs but we haven't got to quantum computing and um, who knows maybe down the road uh if if we have lots of cars on the street uh, every three minutes uh, sending us data and also uh, trying to go through the, the entire library of all the chemical structures for um, coming up with new solvent molecules, then maybe. Uh, but so far, it's, it's mainly supercomputer. Got to look into quantum computing. It's, uh, it's exciting stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So how many how many cars actually have your battery in them today? Yeah, so now uh, um, uh, uh, now uh, we are still in the automotive qualification uh, process. So okay. we uh, were the first company in the world in lithium metal to enter automotive A sample, and then okay. this year we're transitioning to B sample, uh, and uh, so I think by twenty five. Uh, then we expect to have the first wave of uh, cars, also flying cars with okay. lithium ion batteries. What, what does that mean, the A sample and the B sample? I saw that on your website and I went through some of the materials and interviews you've done. I have no idea what that means. What, what does it mean to submit an A sample and a B sample? Why is it a big deal that you're the first battery company to do it? Yeah, so um, because batteries are such an integral part of any uh, cars, land vehicles or uh, flying vehicles, uh, all pretty much all car companies in the world have to go through this uh, qualification process. And it's about 10 years. The first five years is, is really R&D. And, uh, and then the next two is automotive A sample. And then the next one and a half is, is really B sample. And then the last one and a half uh, is, is uh, C sample. So A sample is really the cell uh, meets the technical specifications of the final cell that needs to go inside the vehicle. And then B sample is really A sample, but then now you make it on a manufacturing line and then the, the manufacturing line, the quality of the manufacturing process meet the, the uh, final specs. And this C sample is basically B sample, but now you, you build say 50 cars, 100 cars, and then you test the car for nine months to a year. Okay, so it's just different stages. You've got the concept, yes. you've got an MVP, you've got an alpha, you've got a you've got a beta. Okay, so it's yeah, just, you it, just it, march through the Greek letters until the, the batteries are in cars on the road. Right, right. 
I'm sort of fascinated by the whole supply chain issue. So batteries are remarkably challenging from a manufacturing perspective. What does it look like operating the mines? Do you buy that from other people? Do you source the materials? I know you, you said something about treating the batteries as a system and trying to go from uh, start to finish all the way through. So what, what does that, that aspect of the business look like? Yeah. Um, so the main resources in a lithium battery, there's lithium, there's nickel, there's cobalt, there's manganese. Um, cobalt is actually um, being used less and less uh, because now we actually use more and more nickel. And obviously, there's also aluminum and uh, copper, the more uh, com common materials. But really, it's lithium and nickel. And um, so lithium, there are mines in uh, South America, Australia, uh, also some in Canada. Nickel, there's some in uh, Southeast Asia, also some uh, in Africa. Um, and then these two are pretty geographically diverse. Um, and then what we do as a battery company uh, is that we, and also sometimes uh, together with the final car companies, we will actually sign these offtake agreements with um, mining companies to guarantee certain uh, amount of supply of lithium, nickel at certain price or at certain discount to market price. Um, so, um, and then in the past, I would say two years, the price of lithium became really volatile. Um, and then what we want to do is, uh, for now, we have no choice but to continue to buy lithium and nickel from the mines. But going forward, we're developing recycling technologies so that the car and the battery inside the car can be the mine for the next battery. So the next battery, you don't have to go back to the mine. You just recycle this, this current battery. Obviously, the efficiency is not 100%, and then you will lose some. But then that will significantly reduce the dependence on these mines. How does that recycling work? So, for example, you take this battery pack that has steel and plastic, and then it's actually fairly mature. And then you send it to a recycling company. It will uh, separate the plastic, the steel with the cell, and then it will separate the cathode, the anode, the, the electrolyte, uh, and the separator. Mostly it will burn off a lot of the organic materials. And then what you have left are the metals, the lithium, the nickel, the cobalt, the manganese. And then um, you can recycle them back to lithium carbonate, lithium hydroxide, and then uh, that material you can uh, send back to cathode producers. And then those material can be used as precursors for the, the next generation of uh, cathode. So, so they're not used up in any real sense through the no. process of, of storing the powers. I know, I know some are like that. They can have the electrode that gets corroded over time and, and you, you can maybe pull the solvent out or the electrolytes out, but you can't necessarily pull the electrode material out because it becomes corroded. But with these lithium metal batteries, or I, I guess it would, some of them would be lithium ion, right? It, yes, the the yeah. chemical processes underlying all of it are such that it doesn't actually destroy the constituent material. You, there's just a, a reversal process you have to go through right, that to right. suck it all back out. Right, right. So, so in the case of, I mean, uh, most recycle battery, most rechargeable batteries, like lead acid, is an old technology, and then today worldwide, more than 90% of lead acid batteries is actually recycled. So even though 
lead acid, people think of lead acid as a very bad for the environment. It's actually pretty clean because more than 90% gets recycled. Um, lithium ion and lithium metal batteries, the lithium, the nickel, the cobalt, the manganese, the aluminum, the copper, those materials don't really get consumed. They, they stay in the battery during the entire life, uh, eight years, 10 years. And then when the battery degrade, it's, it's really the interfaces. Um, and then, for example, you use up the electrolyte or the separator gets uh, worn out. But you can take the lithium, the nickel, the, the cobalt out and then reprocess them and then use them again uh, uh, in the next fresh battery. Fascinating. So you're talking, you're talking a lot about the different attributes that batteries have. Um, does the sure battery have other superior attributes like uh, does it uh, can it endure more recharge cycles than the other uh, the competition? Can it uh, operate better in colder temperatures or hotter temperatures or um, under other uh, stressful circumstances? Yeah, so I would say the main benefits are the the higher energy density. And then once, for example, the range per charge increases, uh, that significantly, that will have an impact on, on how often the final user recharges the car. Uh, and then it does have better performance on the low temperature side um, uh, because it's a high concentration solvent and salt. So it doesn't freeze um, as uh, readily as conventional liquid electrolyte. But I would say those are the two main benefits, the longer range per charge as well as the low temperature performance. The others are quite similar. So when it comes to charging, can it be recharged through better through an induction system than the competition or um, uh, is that about the same? Yeah, I think that will be about the same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it's go ahead, Thomas. I'm sorry. Yeah. When, when you're thinking about batteries, you, you're, you're looking at it from lots of different perspectives, and especially when you get into the uh, the details of how how battery technology has evolved over the years, it's gone through lots of different transitions along the way. Um, it just just seems that we're right on the edge of making this massive transition, and we should, and in the process, we're going to substantially clean up the environment. Is that part of the overarching goal that you have in mind? Yes, yes. If you look at how polluting the diesel trucks and the large uh, uh, gasoline SUVs are around the world, um, definitely replacing them with uh, battery, battery electric cars. And then also, of course, at the generation side, eventually if we replace um, the the fossil fuel generation with more renewables, then uh, definitely it will have a very big impact on uh, just global climate change. It's, it sounds like you're pretty far along in the R&D, but I, I believe earlier you said that right now there are no cars running your batteries. Do you have yes. plans on building manufacturing facilities at some point in the near future to actually roll them out at scale? What, what's that next part look like? 
Yes, yes. So now we are in B sample, and then we have to go through the qualification process. And even in the B sample qualification, we are still making uh, uh, anywhere between a thousand to several thousand of these large cells per month per line. Uh, and and uh, even at B sample stage, um, it involves very rigorous manufacturing process as well as uh, quality control. Um, and then once we get to C sample. Uh, then yes, our plan is to uh, figure out a suitable location uh, jointly with the OEM. Uh, say maybe it's it, it's Michigan or it's um, uh, it's uh, Europe or other places for um, for the local market. But yeah, our plan is definitely to uh, build these larger capabilities. I know there's been a lot of talk recently about all of the engineering expertise that goes into making silicon chips and how so much of it is concentrated on Taiwan and there's all these geopolitical tensions and that could have ramifications for the computer market and chat GPT might be shut down because they can't afford the chips anymore. What what goes on in a solvent and salt battery manufacturing facility? Is it mostly robots? Do you, like how, how involved are people even in manufacturing something like this? Yes, so, um, well, Depends. The electrolyte, the manufacturing of the solvents and the salts, these are uh, uh, chemical plants. And then for safety, uh, actually very few workers work in these places. For example, you could have 30 people uh, that would that would uh, run a factory that's that can produce 200,000 tons of electrolyte per year. Um, so for a lot of safety reasons, actually most of it is done by robots because these are um, chemical plants. And then in the U.S., you see a lot of this uh, along the coast of Mexico, uh, uh, along the Gulf of Mexico, um, so Louisiana, Texas, um, where there is a, a deep legacy uh, built by the oil companies. And then that also led to uh, large chemical companies. Um, so that's for the electrolyte. Uh, companies and then for battery manufacturing, also for quality, um, the it's not very labor intensive. And then once you get a C sample and a larger scale, I mean, if you go to a large plant owned by LG or CATL, most of these modern advanced plants, you really see people um, from the the incoming materials going in to code the cathode to the final cell coming out going through. Formation process. It's mostly robots. And and do you program the robots? Is that something you source out, or is that another AI branch to SES? Yeah. So um, the basic function, there are companies that uh, provide these servers. It's pretty mature. Um, we make sure all the data from these equipments from the robots are compatible to our avatar system. The avatar is your AI platform, right? We, we've already right, talked right, a little right, bit about right. okay, the artificial intelligence. Yes, yeah. Do you use yeah. the blockchain for anything? Um, currently, we don't. Um, we are discussing with a few OEMs about using this in uh, quality control, uh, quality management of the cells, and also uh, traceability of uh, of uh, certain material sourcing. Okay. So how many people do you have working for you right now? 
Uh, we have about 250 people. Well, well that's not huge. Yeah. That's not huge, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, where I don't think most people realize what a long-term commitment it is to uh, kind of invent or create a new battery company. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I applaud your uh, kind of your persistence and stick-to-itiveness. Um, that's it's quite a journey you've been on there. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Cool. It's not easy, and, and uh, I mean, um, I mean, just every time we encounter what looked like a very difficult problem, somehow we found a solution, and. Uh, yeah. Um, it, it's like in 2015, we, we thought, okay, this solid polymer lithium metal could never work at room temperature. Then therefore you could never put lithium metal in a car. Well, then we pivoted to high concentration solvent in salt. Now we could put it in a car. And then we, we thought, uh, 2019, there's no way we, we could test, uh, these cells under that many, uh, simulated scenarios to make the car companies comfortable. Well, we started implementing machine learning. Um, and then now we thought, okay, there's no way the human scientists could uh, develop a new solvent molecule that has better Columbic efficiency than the one that we have today. Well, now we are using generative AI and you never know. I think we might actually find something. So it's like each time we encounter some really difficult problem, but um, and initially we think, okay, it's like we're hitting the the limit, uh, but then we figure out a way. Do you have a general process for doing that? Have you managed to identify any principles that allow you to overcome problems in that way? Because I know that there are a lot of deep tech founders who face similar sorts of hurdles during the process of pushing the boundaries of what's possible with chemistry or material science or what have you uh i know it's, it's often hard, hard to introspect on those things because it takes so much of your cognitive power to actually solve the problem but maybe yeah. over 20 years you've uh, been able to observe mental operations you undertake that allow you to do those things they would generalize to other people's situations um i'm not sure there is is like a um principle that you could always apply um i think if we if you see the problem at a very, very um, so if you limit the problem at a material level, then that could be very difficult um, because then you could actually uh, hit certain limits in chemistry and physics. But then if you take a step back and then rephrase this problem in the system level, then you might find a solution. For example, uh, solid polymer, lithium metal if the if the problem that we thought was okay how can we make this solid polymer electrolyte work at room temperature i don't think we could solve that uh because of some chemistry limitations but then we rephrase the problem well it doesn't have to be solid polymer but we still wanted to keep it lithium metal can we make lithium metal work at room temperature well then yes just don't use a solid polymer use use a totally different materials um and then also, things like um, how can you uh, make OEMs comfortable uh, when you don't have any real-world data of lithium metal, when lithium-ion has 30 years of real-world data? Well, if you try to catch up in a brute force way, you will never catch up. But then if you apply machine learning, then you can use um, uh, these new tools to, to make up. So I think... 
if you actually treat the problem as a fundamental material level problem, then um, sometimes it's really hard. But uh, if you see it as a system problem, then there are then you may not have to solve that material problem. You may have to solve a different problem. It sounds like a lot of it is moving like this Necker cube between different perspectives. So you're looking at the physical problem, the physical system, pulling back and saying, is this even the right approach? Should, should we explore other avenues? Mm -hmm. how, how, how do, you, do you just have a sense for when it's time to pull the plug on one particular avenue of research? Because you can also find examples where it was thought to be impossible that this would ever work. And they just kept pushing and kept pushing and they found a breakthrough. And other times when they say, no, 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 it doesn't have to be solid polymers. Let's try, you know, solvent and salt approaches as well. Does that just come from hunches? How do you decide when to give up on one approach and, and try something totally new? Go back to the drawing board. Yeah, so I think uh, it's a combination of, uh, I think it's a hunch that's based on scientific signals. So it's like we run these experiments and then when they don't work, okay, then we see why they don't work. Um, and then if there's any slight signal that we think might solve, might actually solve it, then we keep pushing. But then if there's just no meaningful signal, then we stop pushing. Uh, yes, yeah, so I think it's, it's a hunch based on uh, pretty weak signals. Like it's, 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 it's not that clear. Um, if something is going to work or not, and then you really have to uh, review the experiment. Sometimes it's not so much the data, but then it's more the methodology, how we actually design the experiment. And then mm -hmm. there are these really faint, but very valuable signals. And like every decision is, is based on these very faint signals. Yeah. So part so part of it is generating the signals, part of it's interpreting the signals. And it sounds like yeah. a lot of the knack of entrepreneurship comes down to being able to just connect a bunch of faint dots, see a, see a constellation and lanterns yeah. that are burning on the hillside, and you just sort of faintly see this yeah, signal, yeah. and then you're able to make good decisions on the basis of that. Yeah, yeah. It's like in the old days when astronomers found like a planet, they had no idea uh, there were that was a planet but then somehow they found these like faint black dots that's that's uh in front of other stars and then they it's like they just fill okay that has to be a planet there <laughs> but it's not clear yeah very faint so so they didn't teach you persistence at mit um generally the the path of an entrepreneur is a pretty emotional ups and downs and and it, that's very difficult for anybody to teach you that kind of skill. Um, so how many times have you just said to hell with it, I'm going to throw in the towel on this and uh, go open a hamburger joint or something? <laughs> a few times. Uh, and and then, yeah, uh, I mean, definitely a few times. But then, then like... Not long after I say that, I, I see some faint signals, and then yeah. uh, you know decide to keep pushing. The future calls to you, however faintly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? 
Thomas Fry, and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. So I had, I had a couple of questions just about the deep tech entrepreneurship route. One thing Peter Thiel has lamented is that there are, well, and, and other people as well, have lamented is that there are not that many people who are pursuing this foundational research, or not enough anyway. There are a lot of people building apps, e-commerce apps, and there's nothing wrong with any of that, but there are not so many people who are just drilling down into the bedrock of reality and trying to materially improve the lives of everyone uh, by doing so. So some of, some of that's just capital, right? It's just, just mm-hmm. hard to fund these sorts of things. It just takes a you know, billion dollars in 20 years. And, and so those are just fundamental constraints. But I think some of it is is a lack of vision, maybe. And I wondered if you just had any words of wisdom for people who might want to try to set their sights on solving really foundational challenges. Yes, I think uh, I wouldn't encourage people to try something that that's known to be fundamentally impossible. Uh, just just given laws of physics and laws of chemistry, uh, probably don't do that. But then there are these, um, for example, it's like take an idea that people tried 30 years ago and failed and then try it again. Uh, that actually works out quite well in, uh, I would say, deep tech. Um, for two reasons. One is the fact that people had this idea a long time ago, man, it's probably a good idea. Uh, and then if you truly believe it and then you make sure there are no fundamental limits, then it's it's a good idea. And the fact that they couldn't make it work 30 years ago, maybe they didn't have the material that, now, that, that we have now. Maybe they didn't have machine learning, all the computation power that now we have. Um, I think now we have a lot of tools that people didn't have 30 years ago. So trying something that people tried 30 years ago and and uh, failed, I think it's a good starting point with new tools, of course, with modern tools. Um, and then when they encounter problems, they need to realize that uh, they need to understand the difference between approach and the final goal. So the approach can change constantly, but the goal shouldn't change and 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 they shouldn't spend a lot of time just focusing on one approach uh, and then not get to the goal if if uh, changing the approach uh, means you can actually get to the goal then definitely should do it I think a lot of uh, deep tech entrepreneurs they start with one technology and then when they uh, hit a roadblock, uh, they still stick to that particular technology. Um, but I think if they try a different technology, but still the same goal, I think they may actually uh, get to the goal. So it seems like you could set up a little consultancy, just going over the history of science and looking for ideas whose time might have come, where yeah. the, the basic approach was sound, but for whatever reason, they just couldn't get it off yeah. the ground in the 1980s yeah. when they were originally Absolutely. trying it. Thomas has this story. You'll have to, Thomas, you'll have to remember the company name for me because I can't, I can never remember it. But basically, somebody tried to do the whole Amazon thing in like 
1993 Mm -hmm. but the internet wasn't really there yet they had the trucks and the warehouses and they were doing delivery and and everything but people weren't on their phones yet and they weren't used to shopping online yet and the payments infrastructure wasn't there yet and so these people basically burned a billion dollars on a remarkable idea that later on would make jeff bezos one of the five richest people in the world But the infrastructure wasn't quite there yet. Uh, yeah. Thomas, you know what I'm talking about? You, you must, you must yeah, have referred to Yeah, that's a company called Webvan. Webvan, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that, that'd be a fun research project is just put putting together a blog, going through ideas that just weren't, that didn't quite have the timing right, but that maybe now is the time to do it. Yeah. 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 What What are some things that you're excited about besides batteries? You can't say batteries. Uh, urban air mobility. Why, why is that so cool? That's come up like 12 times. I'm just tired of getting stuck in traffic. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, well, put on the Futurati podcast and that just makes it all go, <laughs> it all just goes instantly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, but I mean, everywhere, every city I go to, it's like, it's impossible to avoid uh, traffic. And then the, the public transit is just inconvenient. Um, and uh, I just think flying from one place to another, it could be, it, it will save so much time. Life right. would be so much better with that. What about uh, quantum computing or the blockchain? Or are there any? Well, yeah. yeah. Are there any technologies we haven't touched upon? Because we've cast a pretty wide net in this interview. Is there anything we missed that you think is really so, cool and is worth well, just sort of like finishing, just slipping in here at the end? Yeah. So I think for urban air mobility, it's like out of personal convenience, and and I really want that. Uh, if one is available, I will totally buy it. Um, but I think one that that really has uh, could have a very big impact on human race overall is super intelligence system, uh, and then we are already seeing some glimpses of this. So, uh, just nine months uh, ago, we started using generative AI to do material discovery. Obviously, it's early stage, but we predict in about two years it can be just as good as a senior scientist, and then maybe five years it can replace our our smarter scientists. And then after that, we wouldn't need any scientists. Then, then, I mean, think of it. It took me 20 years from elementary school to P- to PhD to get a PhD, right? But then all the books I ever studied during this, um, we actually um, were just doing this math. If you take out the time that, uh, that we were uh, sleeping, eating, on vacation, in the gym, not paying attention in class, probably maybe four or five months of actual active learning. And then a uh, some type of active learning model could do that in a few weeks. So I think this could, could render human race uh, in a way that we really don't know. Uh, because we we are trained to go to school, to learn all this, to get a degree, to study this, to to do a, uh, to be productive at workplace, right? But then now if you actually have something that's way more productive uh, and way smarter than any of us, then why do we even need to do this? Should we just sit on the beach and then and then just uh, 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 relax all day because there is something else that is way more productive. And we are seeing that same signal already, at, at least in in our field with electrolyte uh, material development. And, uh, and I think uh, our colleagues are also seeing that in life science. And um, um, I mean, 
soon from a productivity perspective, we may be re uh, rendered in a way that we just can't imagine. Yeah, I, I think intelligence is the biggest lever that you can have. And I, I forget which philosopher it was that said if you gave, gave him a, a long enough stick and a place to stand, he can move the entire earth, right? Mm, it's just a basic yeah. matter of physics. And I think that in terms of pushing the world forward, intelligence, cognition is the biggest lever that you can have to move everything forward. And I'm very excited by these engines of cognition that are coming online and all of that they'll make possible. I'm still sort of thinking through the safety implications of them. I, I do take AI yeah. safety pretty seriously. I think there's a lot of meat to that argument. And it's something that I'm actively exploring. We're interviewing a lot of people in artificial intelligence these days, as you can yeah. imagine. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you get into the topic of air mobility, I've been predicting that we're, we're very close to a time when every major city is going to have over 50,000 drones flying overhead on a daily basis. And managing that air traffic becomes uh, uh, a phenomenal problem and a phenomenal opportunity at the same time. Uh, and have have you given any thought to how that gets solved? Um, I think um, they should all be autonomous. It'll be much easier to solve this problem if they're all autonomous and then there is this central intelligence system that manages everything okay so it's just magic <laughs> just software, algorithms yeah. it's yeah, algorithms yeah, yeah, yeah which yeah, i guess yeah. it might as well be magic um well, dr <laughs> who is is there anything you want to leave the audience with as we wrap up here no i think i mean um uh, we um uh, work on so we started working on this uh, this battery, but then that has gotten us to uh, to get to get involved with urban air mobility, and then also very advanced generative AI. And uh, it's just a really exciting time to be uh, involved in in so many different exciting aspects. So I couldn't agree more. We we really appreciate your time and and you walking us through all this. And thanks so much. We wish you the best. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs> <laughs>